So open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and you'll find that it is a passage that if you have not read, you have heard many, many times before. Ecclesiastes 3. Might be appropriate for for us as we as we transition from summer, uh, leaving one season, going into fall, we're kind of in that middle place right now. Things are a little, you know, the, the weather's changing a little bit. Let's let's read this together. This is the word of the Lord, Ecclesiastes three one through fifteen. For everything there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks that which has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, now we pray, O God, for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to help uh, our mind's eye see and our hearts know and understand what you have spoken here in Ecclesiastes 3. We pray now, O God, that you would transform us by the preaching of the word. Your word is truth. Let our hearts be convicted and convinced that we may leave this place different than the way we came in, leaving more like Christ than when we came through the door. In his son's, your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it was a Tuesday morning in 2001, and I remember getting the call at 6.30 a.m. from my father. And at 6.30 I was still asleep. I was working a swing shift, so I didn't wake up till probably 8.30 in the morning. And he called, and with the most emphatic tone in his voice, he said, turn on the TV right now. And I had never heard a tone in my father's voice like that before. 
And we had telev a television set, but we didn't have TV. So I had to jump in the car, throw on a ball cap, and race over to my parents' house. And I got there and saw the shocking images of the Trade Center towers on fire. And at that time, there was a, they were replaying the clip of the second plane hitting the second tower. The first plane, the image of the first plane had not been released yet. And I stood there, or sat there in horror with these uh, images in front of me. And I really couldn't believe what I was watching. It was jarring. And I would have cried, except I was, I was struck by an overwhelming feeling of disbelief. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. It was just hard to wrap my mind around the image. How could this have happened? How did this happen? 9-11. That a handful of people went to flight school to learn how to hijack commercial jets to attack our country. The most powerful and advanced nation on the planet. My mind had trouble making sense of it, and within weeks, rumors started, conspiracies about some secret government cabal, as if 19 hijackers crashing planes into the Trade Center and the Pentagon itself was not enough of a conspiracy. Um, and so these conspiracies emerged, and um, the explanation that we were given for people who resorted to conspiracies, that was too simple for them. That was too easy. That was, that was too simple of an explanation. There's no way that could have just happened, that they could have just done that. That was too random. It was too troubling to think that a ragtag group of well-funded Middle Eastern men were able to commit such a heinous act with such low-tech means against the richest, most technologically advanced, militarily adept, intelligence-gathering community on the planet, the United States, with box cutters and intimidation and fully-fueled jets. They did this act. If it was true, what did it mean for our world that we lived in such a chaotic place? That things like this can happen in spite of billions of dollars being spent and millions of people in government, military, and law enforcement working around the clock to prevent things like this. And the months and years afterwards, I started to wonder why conspiracy theories emerge. Where do they come from? How do they gain momentum? And how do they come to their conclusions? And I concluded that we struggle as people with the idea of randomness. We struggle with the idea that we live in a world that often we cannot explain. We live in a world where events happen that seem utterly beyond our control. It's easier for us to be able to say, surely there is a group of diabolical men sitting around a grand you know, mahogany table smoking cigars planning the demise of civilizations. That's easier for us than to admit that sometimes life is just totally unexplainable. Sometimes things happen that make no sense. And sometimes the world is chaotic and out of control. 
As we look this morning at our passage in Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most well-known Bible passages um, ever, it's helpful for us to know helpful for us to know a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes. So we all know about Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. They're not promises, but they're wise sayings. And essentially, Proverbs is a book that says, do this, and this is likely to happen, right? Train your children in the way that they should go, and most likely, when they're old, they won't depart from it, right? The book of Proverbs is filled with that kind of advice. That's exactly what they are. It's advice for wise living, and usually the outcome follows the pattern we read in Proverbs. Well, Ecclesiastes is the exception to those rules. Ecclesiastes is the exception to Proverbs. It's, it's uh, when you do good and good does not come back to you. When you work hard and instead of being rewarded, you get a kick in the teeth. When you have done all of your planning and covered all of your bases and dotted all of your I's and crossed all of your T's and things still go horribly wrong, life goes dark. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. It's an exception to the rule. You tend your crops and it doesn't bring harvest. You treat others with dignity and respect and they treat you bad in return. And so the first thing I want us to see as we look at this passage is that we can't control events or their outcome. You might remember that song from the 60s by The Birds. And if you weren't there to hear it when it was released, some of you might be old enough uh, in here to remember. Um, that was before my time, probably a few years before I was born, but the song is famous. To, every, to everything, turn, turn. To every season, turn, turn, turn. To every purpose and season under heaven, right? Um, I won't sing it, but um, you probably know the song. And when you hear the song, you say, well... Uh, that follows Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's, there's this time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And when you read Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, your response is usually, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's a time for mourning, there's a time for dancing, there's a time for crying, a time for laughter. And we tend to read that passage of Scripture and we tend to say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. When I see those seasons approaching, I'll behave the right way. I'll adjust my behavior and accommodate the season of life I'm in. But I mentioned a minute ago that summer is coming to a close, right? The weather is starting to subtly change. And we know that we're coming into fall because the seasons here, at least in North America, they cycle through the year with absolute predictability and regularity. Yeah, the weather, the patterns may fluctuate a little bit, but we know that fall always follows summer. Well, the seasons of life don't work that way. You don't know when you're leaving one season of life and going into another. And so contrary to popular belief about what these verses mean, this passage isn't about recognizing the seasons of life when they come and behaving the right way, living and dying, planting and uprooting, building and tearing down, Killing and healing, loving and hating, mourning and dancing, all have their proper place in their proper times and seasons, but we only recognize them once they're upon us. We're not able to prepare for them. 
We're not able to adjust the, the way we live and the things we do. No one chooses to mourn. It just happens to us. Events beyond our control thrust themselves upon us, and they happen to us. Do you remember those commercials, you know, a few years back? I, don't, I think it was like an insurance commercial, and it showed like, you know, a, a tree falling through the roof, and it said, like, life comes quick. Life happens fast, you know, life comes at you fast, you know. You know, it's a woman walks into, you know, a bank and her son is playing with, you know, something and he lets go of it and it goes flying and shatters, you know, this massive glass window. I mean, you know, life comes at you fast. Well, the seasons of life, they come at you, they overtake you. And you don't choose to be in the seasons of life, they choose you. And that creates a sense of havoc. It can create a sense of panic, in us, because they're unpredictable, and they're scary, and what they say to us, and what the writer here of Ecclesiastes 3 is expressing, is that life often feels out of control. Again, we don't choose to be born. Those things happen to us. And the point is, from the vantage of, the vantage point of the writer of Ecclesiastes, we're not in control. From his vantage point, we are not in control. There's a poem by the English poet William Ernest Henley entitled Invictus. Maybe you've heard it or read it. And he says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, no, no you're not. This passage isn't a prescription. It's not a prescription for us to behave the right way. It's an observation, a taking inventory, if you will. It's kind of like hindsight from a theologian's perspective saying, yeah, this is what happens to you when you're alive. This is what life is like. Soren Kierkegaard has a famous saying. He says, life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward which means you don't know what's coming. You're kind of going into a blind tunnel. You can understand life looking backward. Why? Well, hindsight's 20-20. But the seasons of life come at us. One moment you're mowing your lawn or planning a camping trip, and the next minute the state of Louisiana is entirely underwater. Now, to be clear, the preacher... Which, that's the name of the writer of Ecclesiastes. We think it's Solomon, but he calls himself the preacher. And to be clear, the preacher observes all of this under the sun, which some scholars think is a Hebrew idiom for life without God. You've heard that, right? You've, you've heard this, the statement, there is nothing new under the sun. Well, that comes from Ecclesiastes. In fact, that phrase is used 20 times in Ecclesiastes and only once outside of the book. Um, Ecclesiastes 1 and 3, the next slide. Um, What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Um, Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes 2.17, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. 
3.16, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Chapter 8, verse 9, All this I have seen and applied my mind to, every deed that has been undone under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. And finally, in 9.11, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. And all of these observations is a way of saying that everything in life that should make sense, a certain flow, a certain trajectory, that there are times when none of those things happen. None of the things we expect to happen often happen. And this isn't your typical atheism, but it's a view of the world without the involvement of a personal God. The second thing I want us to see here in Ecclesiastes 3 is that we can't always discern the meaning of events. So the first point was, Uh, We can't control events or their outcome. The second point, as we move into verse 9, is that we can't always control uh, or discern the meaning of events. In verse 9, he says, um, he asked the rhetorical question, what gain has the worker from his toil? So the first eight verses, he's saying, events dictate life to us, not the other way around. Events in life tell us how we're going to behave, how we're going to respond, how we're going to live. We don't tell our, the events of our, we don't you know, govern the events of our life. They kind of govern us. And then the second section here, starting in verse 9, it's, and we don't even always, we're not even always able to discern the meaning of those events. Verse 9, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil, Right? We live, we work, we retire, we die. I remember a statistic years ago from the Teamsters Union, right? Uh, Teamsters, they drive trucks, they're part of the union, that the average life expectancy of a Teamsters truck driver after retirement is one year. We live, we work, we die. What gain, verse 9, has the worker from his toil? He works his whole life expecting a reward in the end, and what does he get for it? What worker, what, what gain has the worker from his toil? And in verse 10, he goes on and says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in his time, and also he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, And the whole idea here is we long to control our lives. And we long to control the future by analyzing the past. But ultimately, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we only see through a glass dimly. And so I have to admit, these are hard words to understand. When I was moving through Ecclesiastes 3, I was befuddled. It may be some of the hardest Uh, Biblical literature there is because it's poetic in nature, and a lot of it is beholden to uh, Hebrew thinking, ancient Hebrew thinking. And I really had to unpack what a lot of this was really trying to say, and it wasn't easy. 
But essentially, what it seems to be saying here in verses 10 and 11 is that um, God has made man busy about the events of his life, and God has beautified the world and given us somewhat of a taste of what God knows about the world. He's put eternity into our hearts. But we still can't figure out the end from the beginning, which is to say we're curious about the transcendent. We're curious about time. We're curious about the future, right? Everybody wants to know the future. And we wish sometimes we could go back into the past and change the past so that the present would be different. Right? You know, if you, had your, if you had the ability to travel time, you would have sent your great-great-grandfather to Beverly Hills and buy up a bunch of real estate before anyone knew it was any, worth any money so that by the time you were born, you'd be sitting pretty, right? There, we wish we could go back. Or you'd take the scores, you know, the World Series. Well, maybe you wouldn't, but, you know, you, you get the idea, right? I'm thinking of, like, Back to the Future. You know, Biff goes back in time with the, you know with like the World Series outcome and makes, you know, all this money. But we're curious about eternity. We're curious about time. We're curious about things that we can't answer. And the question that the preacher is asking here is why? Why has God given us this longing to know about things that we ultimately cannot know about? Which is essentially, our hearts are darkened in some way. There's ignorance in some way because we can't know everything. And what he seems to be saying is, this seems like a a big, cruel joke. God has deliberately uh, darkened our hearts in ignorance, while at the same time making us curious about things we can't really know about. And you know, philosophers have um, come to the same conclusion, right? Right? They've said there's no, there really is ultimately no meaning of life. Now, right now you're thinking, Jordan, um, I don't know where you're headed with this, but we're, we're, if your purpose was to discourage us, it's working. Uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to walk us through the emotions of the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, who's likely the writer of Ecclesiastes, and the things he struggled with about life. Solomon had all this wisdom, he had all this wealth, and he did everything that essentially provides happiness for human beings. He had the money to make grand building projects, and he did. He engaged and interacted with the most famous leaders of the ancient world, the Queen of Sheba, and he had had all of these different experiences, and he goes down to the first couple of chapters, all of the things he did. He said he had, you know, camel and oxen and sheep and all of this livestock. He had temples and palaces, and he had building projects, and he had servants and slaves, and he had all of these things. And then he goes on, he said, and I had wives and women and concubines. Everything seemingly that the world says, these are the things that make you happy. And do you want to know what his conclusion was? Who knows? You know it. He says what? All all is vanity. After having done all these things, having had had the resources to control so much of his life, he concludes all is vanity. And then he's scratching his head saying, as far as I can see, I'm struggling to find meaning in all the events of life. The things that work out on your behalf and the things that don't work out on your behalf. 
And so he's trying to wrap his mind around the flow and the contours of our lives. I don't know what you went through this past week or this past month or this past year or decade, but you can probably attest to the fact that there have been times where you just sat back and said, what in the world are you up to, God? Because it doesn't make sense to me. We long for control. We struggle with vulnerability. We don't like it. We don't like the feeling that life is out of control, and we don't like the feeling that when we get through some harrowing experience, that we're not able to make sense of it. What was that for, God? I started a business and it failed. Why did you have me? Couldn't you just spared me the heartache, right? You know, I went through a relationship, a marriage, and I had the highest expectation and it disintegrated. Why did you do that, God? Why did you allow that to happen in my life? You know, I was pregnant with, with a child, you know, our, our, our first, and my wife miscarried. Why would you do that to me, God? I love you. I serve you. I proclaim your name. Why? We can't always figure out the meaning of suffering and qualify, you know, the depth of our experiences and make sense of it. And then finally in verse 12, he says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his work. This, to me, seems God's gift to man. And that's a fancy way of saying, because I don't really know what the meaning of life is, just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's another way of saying that. It seems that the only gift God has given to humanity is just to be able to eat and drink and be merry. That's what, he, that's what he's, he's, he's saying. Um, and this is the conclusion, as I said a minute ago, of many philosophers there's no meaning to it all, they conclude. The meaning of life is whatever you make it. And you know, we live in a time right now where the pursuit of individual happiness is the ultimate goal. This is why one of the reasons why we struggle with community, even as Christians. We struggle to do things that don't directly affect our own happiness because we're living in a time in human history where the highest goal of all of our endeavors is our own personal good or our own personal happiness. And if something does not result in our own personal happiness, it's not good. That's kind of the way we think. We may say, I don't think that way, but we all kind of act that way in many ways. Now, that's not the biblical vision for life. The biblical vision for life is that we orient our lives around what's good, whether or not it always feels like it makes us happy or not. In fact, you can just look at our nation right now and say, yeah, that's where we're at as a nation. We're, we live at a time where, at least in the Western world, where everyone is doing what is right in what? In their own eyes. Because they're seeking, ultimately, their own individual good without respect of whether it's good for anyone else. But seeking our own happiness does not fill the world with meaning. It kind of empties it. The world becomes one big cruel and selfish place when everyone does what simply pleases them individually. See, at the end of the day, even if you say, well, I'll fill the world, I'll fill my life with my own sense of meaning, we're still left with vanity and bankruptcy and emptiness. 
And so, if verses 1 through 8 show us that we can't control the seasons of our life that are imposed upon us when they come and go, verses 9 through 15 seem to stress that the events in our life undermine the confidence that our endeavors will have any permanence. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes was postmodern before postmodernism. Now, here's the question looming over this text. All right? We've just done a lot of hard, grinding work to figure out this complex passage of Scripture. But the question that looms over the text for us is this. How do we respond as the children of God when life is beyond our control? How do we respond? What do we do about this seeming crisis of control that we long for, but we don't really have? Or maybe it's better for us to ask, since we can't control events and their outcome, let alone always understand their meaning, what can we control? What can we control? Well, number one, we can rest in the fact that God is sovereignly control, in control of our lives, and every life for that matter, even when we're not in control. And not only that, but God is sovereignly in control of the whole cosmos. And I want to tell you this morning that it only takes one autonomous atom for there to be chaos in the universe. It only takes one autonomous uh, molecule for God not to be in sovereign control of the cosmos. Now you may say, well, that's great, but um, uh, that, that's great, but what if God is arbitrary? What if God is cruel? Right? Um, okay, he's in control, but that still doesn't give me any comfort because what if he sovereignly decides to inflict cruelty on me? Even though God is in control, he could be a capricious God, cruel or arbitrary or unloving. What do we say to this? Well, the answer isn't in Ecclesiastes 3. We have to look somewhere else for that. It's in Romans 8 and 28. Just think about that for a moment. Maybe you know that passage of Scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those that love God and are called according to his purposes. See, the answer to Ecclesiastes 3, which was written centuries, maybe eight centuries before Romans, you know, it comes all these centuries later with the knowledge of Jesus Christ that Paul has, how Christ, who reveals the triune God to us, makes sense of our confusing and seemingly chaotic universe that we live in. All things that we can't explain beyond our control that seemingly cause unnecessary pain in our life, all things are working for our good because we love God and we've been called according to God's purposes. Yes, the things that seem most counterintuitive in your life are working for good. How? We don't know exactly. How has tragedy, how does tragedy work for good? I don't, we don't know. If you, if you read uh, the book of Job, the book of Job is marvelous. When you go home today, get on YouTube and look up the Bible Project. 
It's an 11-minute video. It's like an animation video. It's not for kids. It's for adults. But it's this professional animation of what the book of Job is about. It's great. It's free. These are solid Bible guys that that put this together. And it's an 11-minute long video. And when you get to the end, one of the things they illustrate is that when God responds to Job, because Job... Right? The book of Job is a part of this wisdom literature, grappling with the meaning of life, grappling with things that don't make sense and tragedy. And in the final chapters of Job, God responds. And some of the response we're familiar with, right? God says to Job, where were you? And I hung the stars and the heavens. But then God does this thing where he starts talking about the earth and he says, look at Leviathan and Behemoth. He says, look at these grand creatures. Now, we don't know what they are. Maybe they're hippopotamus, crocodiles, blue whales. We don't know exactly. Maybe they're a creature that's extinct now. And God says, look at these animals. They're magnificent. They're glorious. But they're not safe. God is bragging on the earth, the creation, and some parts of the creation, some parts of the world as it exists right now, actually can create catastrophe for us. And they end with the idea that Job's question about suffering is never answered. God's implied answer is that the world we live in right now, the world we live in at this moment, is not designed to prevent suffering. But God is still proud of this world. This is his creation. Fallen, to be sure, will be redeemed ultimately when Christ's prophetic and final plans come to fruition but God is still pleased to brag and boast on the world. We live our lives in the face of glory and tragedy, things we can and can't control. Our lives are filled with joy, our lives are filled with pain, and God is in control of all of it. It's all for his glory and for our good. And then third... We can be confident in our identity as sons. Now let me unpack this for you ladies in here. Um, When the Bible talks about us being sons of God, this is one of those places where you want to be a son of God. Because what, what the biblical concept of sonship means is access to the inheritance of the Father. So it's really speaking about a position, not a gender, right? So in this sense, being confident in sonship, it's not a sin to say daughtership if you want or being confident that you're a daughter of God. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea is, when I'm, when I'm talking about us being confident in our sonship, it means confident in the fact that God has adopted us. I heard of a pastor recently who, um, before he, um, he was a missionary for many years. And in a third world country, he adopted um, a young boy. And the boy was about nine years old. And every night after dinner... Uh, his adopted son, in the very beginning, would pile all the leftovers on his plate. And he would, after dinner, take the plate into his room of food. He wasn't confident that this adoption thing was for real. He wasn't confident that he was really a son with an ongoing access to all the blessings of his father. He was insecure in that. And one of the reasons we struggle and long for control in our lives is because we struggle with our identity as sons and daughters. We struggle with the idea that God has truly adopted us. There's fear there. There's a lack of trust. And at the end of the day, it's an identity issue. 
Are we Christ's? Do we belong to God or don't we? See, when you, when you rest in that knowledge that you're God's, you're God's very own children, and you stop wrestling with your identity, you'll stop fearing the things you can't control. You can't worry and trust God at the same time. That's what God wants for us. God does not dispute the idea that life is out of control from our perspective under the sun. But the knowledge from Romans, the the statement from Romans 8, is that all things are working together. And this final point I want to make, even if your life goes exactly like you want it, right? Life's a home run, you know? It's a grand slam for you baseball fans. It's probably everybody in here. Right? You know, you just round the bases. That's just how life is. Just boom. I mean, you know, you talk to those people. Everything's going your way. Guess what? You know what Paul says? Without Christ, it's all meaningless anyway. Paul had that kind of life as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as a, someone with a religious pedigree. And you know what he says? All of that which was gained to me, I consider now meaningless compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So even if your life goes exactly how you want it to, without Christ, it's meaningless anyway. Jesus Christ gives us the meaning we long for and need, and ultimately we surrender and relinquish control because he's in control of it all. Let's pray. Grant, we pray, O God. And that the words which we have heard this day with our outward ears may through your grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to honor and praise your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.